If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 2, and we will be there in about 20 minutes. We sang uh, one of my favorite uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither songs this evening, Because He Lives. And they've given uh, so very much to gospel music in their era. They wrote a song a number of decades ago that became one of their trademark kind of epic songs. It's often a powerful highlight on their old school concert tours and that song is called The King is Coming. The lyrics are beautiful. They're filled with hope. And in fact, they're worth taking the moment to hear. It's, it's emotional and to, I think, the best degree that they could generate. It's Christ-exalting. Listen to these words. The first verse says, The marketplace is empty. No more traffic in the streets. All the builders' tools are silent. No more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives cease their labors. In the courtroom, no debate. Work on earth is all suspended as the king comes through the gate. And then the famous chorus, Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. The next verse says, Happy faces line the hallways, those whose lives have been redeemed. Broken homes that he has mended, those from prison he has freed. Little children and the aged, hand in hand, stand all aglow, who were crippled, broken, ruined, clad in garments white as snow. The third verse gets even bigger. I, hear the, I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng The flurry of God's trumpets spells the end of sin and wrong. Regal robes are now unfolding. Heaven's grandstands all in place. Heaven's choir now assembled start to sing. Amazing grace. And then it ends again on the chorus. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God. He's coming for me absolutely inspiring lyrics, emotional, filled with hope of Christ's return. But depending on how you interpret the song, it could be post-millennial, that the earth has been prepared for the arrival of the king by the triumph of the gospel over the whole world, or it could be amillennial, that the kingdom of Christ on earth was already happening during the church age, and now the king simply returns as a final exclamation point, what this song definitely is not is premillennial. It alters or leaves out major details from Scripture concerning the coming of Christ. It leaves out the rapture, no matter when you think the rapture occurs. It leaves out any sort of great tribulation. It leaves out any sort of judgment of the rebellious who reject the gospel. It pictures Jesus primarily coming to fix things like broken homes and crippled legs. It says that his coming spells the end of sin, and yet there are still aged people in the last days of their lives. But most conspicuously, it describes Jesus coming in peace. But both Revelation 14, 20 and Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, describe the second coming of Christ, listen carefully, as the greatest slaughter of humanity since Noah's flood. From a purely sentimental, emotional standpoint, I enjoy the Gaithers, The King is Coming. I've probably listened to that song at least a hundred times. But it does not reflect biblical reality. It's most closely identified with amillennialism. And that's our topic tonight in our final message in our little mini-series on alternate views of the coming millennium. And as I mentioned last time, this is the most challenging mini-series because it's it's argumentative. It's negative. It's an argument against something. And in this mini-series, we've examined amillennial and post-millennial views. We have looked at answering amillennialism. We've looked at the methods of amillennialism. And to tie a bow around this little mini-series, I want to look tonight at the theology of amillennialism. 
Now, let me ask you the question you might be thinking right now. We just enjoyed some glorious baptism testimonies, some glorious salvation testimonies. What does this have to do with me? I just want to faithfully follow Christ. Well, what this has to do with you is that the Lord Jesus has given us tremendous quantities of detail about the coming of Christ to rule on the earth. The Bible's saturated with the topic. It's everywhere. And what does that mean? It means God wants you to be concerned at the level that He is with this topic. He's provided such extensive information to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 applies in that all Scripture is God-breathed. And what's the next word? Is useful. And so this is useful to you. And it's helpful because if you have an accurate understanding of God's plan for the return and the reign of Christ on earth, it helps you see the current world through the proper set of theological lenses. And it helps you to have a future focus. It helps you to be like the Apostle Paul comforted us with a future reunion he said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Don't you want to know how He's coming? Don't you want to know the details? Hey, let me put it to you this way. Ladies, if you were waiting for the arrival of your true love, and He's on the other side of the world, and He's coming home, and if He had left written descriptions of how and when and what manner He's arriving... Wouldn't you want to soak in those details and get them right? You wouldn't say, I think he's flying into LAX sometime in October. No, you, you would have all the details. You, you would never say, oh, he'll get here when he gets here. In exactly the same way, while we're not provided with the day and the hour of the return of Christ, the consummation of this age, we are provided with massive repetition in Scripture concerning the nature and the reasons and details about the coming age of Christ's reign on earth. And so it is useful to you because it literally changes the way you look at your current life because it helps you have a future focus as we're commanded multiple times in the New Testament. So here's my plan for tonight to look at the theology of amillennialism. First of all, I want to do a short survey of how amillennialism has been unhelpful in many areas of theology. And I want to go fairly quickly through that because I don't want to spend all of our time there. But then I want to go to the biblical writers and I want to show you what I'll call some cannots concerning amillennialism. You'll understand what I mean when we get there. Now, why is this so important? This subject, this issue literally affects the storyline of the entire Bible. It affects how you view the gospel. It affects how you approach the Bible. And so this is really foundational. And so first, we're going to spend just a bit of time on a short survey of how amillennialism has been unhelpful to many areas of theology. And I'm, I'm going to leave out the doctrine of the end times, eschatology, where we've already made that case significantly and we'll continue to do that. But my point in this short survey is to show you that the differences between amillennialism and premillennialism go far beyond just how we view the end times. That that's, it's not a minor point of disagreement. It's a major point of disagreement. And, and my hope for you is that your heart is thrilled by truth and that in your conversations with our amillennial brothers and sisters that you're able to point them to this truth based in Scripture. But there are, out of the 10 or 11, depending on how you uh, define them, there are five of those areas of theology that are negatively impacted by amillennialism, not just the study of the end times. I'm not even counting that one, so six if you count that one. But let me just go through this quickly. I'll spend the most time on the first one. The first area of theology negatively impacted is bibliology. Bibliology, that's the study of the Bible, not Bible study, but the study of the Bible. We've already spent a significant amount of time talking about the methods, the Bible study methods of amillennialism, this is a related field, that of bibliology, which isn't, again, about Bible study, but about the study of the Bible. And last time we developed the history and the methods of spiritualizing the Old Testament prophetic texts about the end times. That's characteristic of amillennial theology. We noted that amillennialism rejects the idea, generally speaking, of interpreting all of the Bible figuratively, spiritualizing any and every text, but I did show you that there is a selective spiritualization, and I'm using their terms, not mine. They use the term spiritualization, the selective inter spiritualization, particularly 
all the Old Testament prophetic texts that demonstrate an intermediate millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, and of course, the entire book of Revelation in the New Testament. And we also know that, that there's no set system for knowing how or when to make a text symbolic, except the, the one rule that seems to go across the board is that if a text seems to indicate premillennialism, then we spiritualize it. That seems to be the rule. We also know that, that the very same techniques have been used by liberals to deny the resurrection of Christ and other miracles in the Bible. And, and we would say, well, we're not anything like them. Uh, spiritual or biblical literal, uh, liberalism began in the mid-1800s, which essentially denied everything miraculous about the Bible, including the Bible itself. And you would say, well, amillennialism has nothing to do with that. We're, we're far apart from that. But it has bled over into non-liberal theologians as well. I'll give you an example. The late 19th and the early 20th century great theologian B.B. Warfield, he gave us some of the best clarity on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture that to this day has ever been written. Incredible defender of bibliology. But he had a few post-millennial and a lot of amillennial leanings. And he wrote in his book called Biblical Doctrines, the Revelation 20, 1 through 10, which is a description of the return of Christ, the binding of Satan, and the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, he wrote that that's actually, symbolically speaking, of heaven. Other theologians have studied Warfield's assertions about Revelation 20 and came to the conclusion that the methods B.B. Warfield used to arrive at that interpretation are the same methods used by liberals to deny the inerrancy of Scripture and to deny the literal resurrection of Christ. Same method used by amillennials to deny the literal prophecies of the Old Testament. It's all the same method. And so the impact of amillennialism on bibliology has been tragic. The very first inroad... The very first gateway, so to speak, of the slippery slope of denying the inspired nature of Scripture, that it's God-breathed and perfect in every way, is to subvert the meaning of Scripture by spiritualizing specific words and texts. And this opened the door to now move beyond spiritualizing all the way to simply questioning all of the verbal inspiration of Scripture that God has now sort of spoken. And now the entire Bible is called into question now, I, I want to be as fair as I can, can. The vast majority of amillennialists would certainly hold to the inspiration of Scripture. But historically, it can be shown that it was amillennial theology which opened the door to heretical liberal thinking. So if I put it this way, amillennialism didn't cause liberalism, but it did give it the spiritual air it needed to breathe. It didn't shut it down. And this is actually pretty easily understood because premillennial literal interpretation of Scripture is as far from the opposite of a liberal denial of the inspiration of Scripture as is possible. We're on opposite ends of the universe. In fact, we could demonstrate historically that all the way going back even, for example, to the mid-20th century, there was at one time what one theologian called a widespread defection of amillenarians to liberalism. Why? Because the way they approach Scripture is so similar. And so, in other words, amillennialism became a gateway to completely deny all of Scripture. And in fact, to look down on people who would simply say, well, I, I may be dumb, but I just take the whole Bible literally. If that's what you believe, you are looked down on. Another impact of amillennialism on bibliology has been the path of, of carnage left concerning the book of Revelation. Great theologian John Walvoord observed, quote, the history of interpretation, speaking of Revelation, the history of interpretation is strewn with the wreckage of multiplied schemes of interpretation which are every one contradictory of all the others. This writer, speaking of Walvoord himself, has personally examined 50 historical interpretations of Revelation by amillennial theologians all of which would be rejected by any intelligent person today. In other words, there isn't one system to interpret Revelation. There are literally dozens. 
And it's stripped revelation of its glory and its joy because nobody knows what it means anymore. It's the second area of theology that has been negatively impacted. Christology, the study of the Son of God. And this one might be surprising to you. And I do want to say up front that the orthodox view of Christ is essentially identical between amillennialism and premillennialism. We, we both understand the deity and the humanity of Christ, the, the dual nature of Christ and so forth. But there is a major difference. And that major difference concerns the purpose of the incarnation of God, the purpose of the coming of the Son of God as a human being. The amillennial view of the incarnation of God in Christ is very limited in scope is generally confined to the salvation purposes of Christ. And again, to be fair, I think our covenant theology and amillennial brothers have articulated the salvation given through Christ in more clear detail and in better terms than anyone in church history ever has. And yet, is that the only reason Christ came? Premillennialism is much more robust, much more three-dimensional in that the fact that Christ came to save us also is including the fact that he came to fulfill the Davidic covenant, which he hasn't done completely yet. He came to fulfill the promise of a king and a throne on earth. If you're here on Sunday mornings, you know that all of the gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus coming to the earth to offer himself to Israel as their king. There's a tendency in all millennialism when we think about the second coming of Christ to simplify it to rob the second coming of the richness of what it means when God, the king of the earth, comes to destroy his enemies, to, to, to judge the survivors of the great tribulation, to set up a kingdom on earth made up of resurrected saints and a growing number of reproducing mortals left from the great tribulation. In other words, premillennialism has a robust, full-orbed view of the purpose of the incarnation of Christ. The third area that has caused problems, and this one might be a surprise to you, that is in the area of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And if you're trying to spell pneumatology, it's easier to think of it as pneumatology. There's a P in front of it. The average amillennial is generally covenantal, meaning that there's very little distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That in the Old Testament, the church was called Israel. There are countless covenant theologians who call Israel uh, the church and, and the church Israel. It's, it's interchangeable. And in the New Testament, the church is the new Israel or some form or variation. There, there's very little distinction. Well, this presents a major problem for pneumatology, for the study of the Holy Spirit. Because the church age, the believers in this age are incredibly distinct because we have something that has never been before. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, he's active. He even guided certain individuals in certain ways. That's another study for another day. There's even perhaps a version of regeneration that doesn't reach to the, nearly to the level of new covenant regeneration. But you could never make a case for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, amillennialism really leads to the idea that the bringing in the inauguration of the church at Pentecost isn't that big of a deal. And I think if you say that to most amillennialists, they would say, well, no, it is a big deal. But if you're going to be consistent where the Old Testament isn't that different than the New Testament, the Israel isn't really that different from the church and they're essentially interchangeable, you can swap one out for the other, then to be consistent, Pentecost isn't that big of a deal. So it harms our study of the Holy Spirit. There's a fourth area that it harms angelology, the study of angels, and in particular, the study of the head of the fallen angels, Satan. Even in the hallways of amillennialism, there is sharp disagreement about the angels, including Satan. There are levels of disagreements, and one of the reasons is because amillennialism includes liberal amillennialists who deny the existence of angels, and they see angels as nothing more than pagan mythology. The premier amillennialist, Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century, he spiritualized Revelation 20 and all New Testament passages concerning Satan's work in the world to say that Satan was bound at the first coming of Christ. He was defeated at the cross. Now, we would agree that Satan was defeated at the cross, 
But does that mean that he's currently bound, even as amillennialists often assert, bound in respect to stopping the gospels from going to the nations, the, the gospel from going to the nations, rather? And even to this day, there really isn't, within amillennialism, a united front about what Satan's binding actually means. Because the events of the world are so very contrary to any sort of belief that Satan is bound. I've covered that in other messages, and later on I'm actually going to devote several messages solely to the coming binding of Satan, as recorded in Revelation 20. But Scripture presents major problems to this view, particularly to the idea that Satan is currently bound from being an influence to stop the spread of the gospel. Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. That doesn't sound very bound to me. Paul told the Corinthians that the state of the lost is extremely serious because of Satan's work. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he said that the God of this world, this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I don't have time to go through all these, but other passages after the ascension of Christ showing the clear negative activity of Satan. You have Acts 5, verse 3. You have 1 Corinthians 7, 5. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Second 2 Corinthians 12, 7. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. 1 Timothy 1, 20. All of these affirm the very real activity of Satan in this world currently. So what's the solution? We need the king to come, don't we? And, and finally, ecclesiology, the study of the church, ecclesiology, this is, of course, the greatest difference between amillennialism and premillennialism. We would agree that salvation is always on the basis of the death of Christ, whether in the future for Old Testament saints or in the past for New Testament saints that salvation is always by faith. We are, we are joined at the hip in that orthodox belief. But because almost all amillennialists tend toward covenant theology, that means there's a, a blurred distinction between Israel and the church. And this means almost across the board denying a future for Israel as a nation. The promises to Israel are now supposedly transferred to the church by means of spiritualizing the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel since in covenantal thinking, Israel lost the promises of God when they rejected Christ. Remember that phrase, Israel lost the promises of God when they rejected Christ. And by the way, this leads to spiritualizing not just the Old Testament, but even portions of the New Testament Portions of Romans 9, 10, and 11, which speak of Israel being saved. 9, 10, and 11 is, is like swallowing a camel if you're amillennial, because it's all about the coming restoration of Israel. A big difference is that amillennialism generally follows Augustine. And Augustine introduced the idea of the kingdom of God on earth as a present reality right now, that the kingdom of God is happening now. Well, the first group to take their cue from Augustine in a huge way was the Roman Catholic religion. The Roman Catholic religion continues to maintain that, that the church is the outworking of the kingdom now, that the Catholic church is the new Israel. The reformers in the 15 and 1600s, they were, they were busy defending the biblical gospel, and so because of that, they failed to clarify that point. They didn't break with the Roman Catholics. They didn't break with them on numbers of things, such as infant baptism, and in some cases even transubstantiation, that the, the body and blood of Christ is literally uh, transformed or, or becomes the body and blood of Christ at, the, at communion and so forth. Now, the Reformers were busy defending the Bible and defending the gospel, so they didn't have time to go through every single area of theology. And so, in the things that they didn't have time to, to refute, they just said, well, we'll just keep agreeing with the Catholic Church. Under amillennialism, the kingdom of God is now, and it's completely divorced from the idea of Christ reigning on earth over both Israel and the nations, that the kingdom is made up of the visible church today, and that's it. This is much more Catholic than it is scriptural. So I just wanted to show you in the last few minutes that amillennialism is much more than just a, a, a minor disagreement about what happens at the end of time.
It has a very real impact on some of the very foundations of the things that we hold dear. But now I want to go to the biblical writers, take a bit of a tour through Scripture, and I want to show you what I'll call some cannots concerning amillennialism. Some cannots. The first one is, the psalmists cannot be amillennial. The psalmist cannot be amillennial. And I just want to briefly touch on several key psalms to demonstrate this. I don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to do 10. So look at uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. You notice some of the features in just these three verses. The Son of God in a future time will receive all the nations. The Son will possess the earth. The Son will bring judgment to the earth. Verses 10 through 12, I won't read them, but these verses give a warning to kings that they will serve the Son of God or they'll face His wrath. This hasn't happened yet. It can't be speaking of the final state because there's no need for a threat of any kind in the final state. Turn to Psalm 14. In Psalm 14, this Psalm of David makes a statement that is both prophetic and I think often misunderstood. Psalm 14, the last verse, verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores his captive people, may Jacob rejoice, may Israel be glad. Now, this is often misunderstood to be applied solely to the coming exile of Israel and the release of tens of thousands of them. But it can't be merely speaking of the event of the return in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Why is that? Well, it says that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, from Jerusalem. That's not what happened in the return. Jerusalem was rubble. Jerusalem was just a set of ruins when the exiles first returned. So salvation did not come from Jerusalem. But Zechariah 14 says that the salvation of Israel, the literal rescue of the nation, happens when the Lord Jesus arrives to this earth. And where is he going to arrive? Not going to be Memphis. It's going to be Jerusalem. Turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 pictures prophetically Christ, the coming king. But there's one detail I don't want us to miss. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This is a psalm of David. Almost certainly he's not referring to himself. He would probably not refer to himself as the King of glory. And when you put this together with Psalm 22 which speaks of the suffering Savior. Psalm 23, which speaks of the shepherding Savior. Psalm 24 speaks of the sovereign Savior, the the King who is coming. But here's the detail we shouldn't miss. Twice, the ancient doors are personified. They're, They're told to open up for the King of glory. So here's the question. What ancient doors? Well, symbolically, the doors to the place mentioned in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? What is that? That is the temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes the construction of a new temple during the millennial reign of Christ that Messiah may enter into as the king. Turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is just a premillennial treat. We could take hours on this, but let me just point out a pattern in the first several verses. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High, 
God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar. The kingdoms shake. He gives His voice. The earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. What's the pattern? This is a little miniature explanation of a premillennial view of the end times. These events, the earth changing, the mountains falling into the sea, massive earthquakes, then a river coming from the city of God in the midst of her, the nations under the rule of Yahweh of hosts who is with us. This pattern fits exactly the descriptions found multiple places elsewhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Great Tribulation followed by the return of Christ to Jerusalem to refurbish this world. And you even get the detail of the river in the city of God. Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 47 describe a new river literally coming from the throne of God, from the temple, going in two different directions. This is a little miniature encouragement. And I would say, think about the Jew who at the end of the Great Tribulation has come to faith in Christ. Zechariah 12.10 says that, that the nation of Israel will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son that they'll repent. Now, put yourself in their shoes. All the horrors of the Great Tribulation have been happening. The, the judgments of God on the earth. God is our refuge and strength. We will not fear though the earth should change. And what's their hope? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 46 is to the saved Jew at the end of the Great Tribulation a message to hang on. The king is almost here. Turn to Psalm 48. What did the Jew expect from reading Psalm 48? Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made Himself known as a stronghold. The Jew expected from reading Psalm 48 that God would reign in the city of our God, that is Jerusalem, and it would be, I love this phrase, in verse 2, beautiful in elevation. How do you know something is beautiful in elevation? There's no spiritualization to this. It just means it's the highest thing you can see. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says that it will be in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and it will be lifted up above the hills. One of the last things to happen during the Great Tribulation is, is seismic activities such that mountains on the earth, islands are falling down except one. The mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. And it will be beautiful in elevation. Turn to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a prediction that the enemies of God will be scattered. They'll be defeated one day. Psalm 68 is dripping with references to a future reign of God on earth. And, and Israel's hope from reading Psalm 68 is, is not merely that God will reign on earth over Israel, but He'll reign over all the nations. And right near the end, Psalm 68, verse 29, verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. That didn't happen when Christ was on earth. Certainly isn't happening now. It will happen during the millennial reign of Christ. Zechariah 14 says this in verse 31. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Examples of nations coming to worship Christ. Turn to Psalm 72. This is a psalm of King Solomon himself and he's expressing wishes for the king of Israel. And you might think, well, he's expressing wishes for himself. But in Psalm 72, it becomes pretty quickly apparent that he can't be speaking only of himself. Psalm 72, verse 8. May he also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the desert creatures kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring a present. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute and let all kings bow down to him. All nations serve him. Now, Solomon was a great king and many nations sent leaders to come to him, but never did all the nations of the earth serve him. And notice, 
this cannot be speaking of Christ during the final state because there are still problems in the world for him to solve. And just to point this out again in verse 8, may he also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Your Bible might even capitalize river. What is this river? This is the river in Jerusalem that is to come. And so this isn't from this border to this border. This is from a central point outward. That's the dominion of Christ. In verse 13, verse 12 rather, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy and the lives of the needy he will save. Again, that can't be the final state. There's problems to solve. And then the rest of the psalm is just this beautiful description of what it will be like to live under the rule and reign of the king of all the kings. Turn to Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, we have an extremely future-oriented psalm. Psalm 98, verse 1. Sing to Yahweh a new song, for He has done wondrous deeds. His right hand and His holy arm have worked out His salvation. Yahweh has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the eyes of the nations. Has that happened yet? That hasn't happened yet. He's revealed his salvation to many people in the nations, but not to nations as a whole. And now the psalm describes the worldwide worship of God. And I want you to notice a title that is given to God. Verse 4, Make a loud shout to Yahweh all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a loud shout before King Yahweh. And someone might say, well, of course, that's amillennial because this is God reigning from heaven as king now. The kingdom is now. Verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. Did you catch that? He is coming to judge the earth. King Yahweh, spoken of in Psalm 98, is on the earth, not above it. Turn to Psalm 110. And we notice a clear order of events and and even a little geography lesson as well. In Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1, Yahweh says to my Lord, this is God the Father speaking to Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Have dominion in the midst of your enemies. First of all, there's an order of events. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then he receives his enemies as a footstool for his feet. Then he has dominion over his enemies. What's the geography lesson? Sit at my right hand. That's Christ in heaven. That's where he is right now. Ruling with strength from where? From Zion. Jerusalem, that's Christ now on earth and having dominion over his enemies where in the midst of them. See also Zechariah 14 and about a hundred other passages about the return of Christ. Turn to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. This psalm speaks of God having a dwelling place on earth The psalmist uses David as an example. When David was determined that God would have a temple on earth as his touch point with humanity, the end of the psalm describes where God will personally reside on earth and what that time will look like. Psalm 132, verse 13, For Yahweh has chosen Zion, that is Jerusalem. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will inhabit, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her holy ones will sing loudly for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring up. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon him his crown shall blossom. This is God the Father speaking and saying, I have promised that mine anointed, my son, will be crowned with glory. The psalmists cannot be amillennial. There's no way. Let me give you a second cannot. 
Jesus cannot be amillennial. Jesus cannot be amillennial. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is the account of what Jesus was teaching the disciples after the resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. And what was his topic to teach? Acts 1 at the end of verse 3, he was appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. We've made this case already, but when you speak to a Jew about the kingdom of God, it is not an ethereal, invisible concept. It is a kingdom that is on earth with a visible king. Forty days of teaching about the kingdom of God, and Jesus presents it as future. Now listen, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's teaching on the kingdom. If Jesus were amillennial, if the kingdom of God was about to begin right after his ascension, literally in a few minutes, if you take the beginning of the kingdom from the ascension of Christ, or at the very least in a few days, if you take the beginning of the kingdom from the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you might think that Jesus would show some urgency. That look, the kingdom is about here. It's almost here. If Jesus is all millennial, the kingdom is about to begin. And there isn't any time left. This is the moment to say that. And the fact that disciples, after 40 days of hearing Jesus teaching on the coming kingdom of Christ, they asked the obvious, most burning question. They asked, in essence, this is my translation, are you all millennial? <laughs> are we supposed to be all millennial? In other words, is the kingdom about to be on earth now? So they asked this question, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, meaning they're asking him over and over again, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Are you restoring the kingdom now? Is the kingdom coming now? What a chance for our millennialist Jesus to say, yes, just give me a minute to ascend into heaven or give me 10 days or so to send the Holy Spirit and the kingdom begins now. But he didn't do that. Verse 7, but he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. In other words, the kingdom is not coming now. But until it does, you are to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. By the way, if Jesus is millennial. He would have rebuked their question as idiotic. Because the disciples asked, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? If Jesus were millennial, he would have answered, I'm done with Israel. Because the disciples would not have conceptualized the church as the new Israel for them. Israel was the ethnic descendants of Abraham. If Jesus was millennial, he missed the most perfect opportunity to make that assertion. Now, how dare you talk about Israel? I'm done with Israel. The church is the new Israel. But he didn't. And his answer tells us two things. It tells us, first of all, the kingdom is not during the church age. And the second thing, Israel's kingdom will be restored. And what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Well, he taught us what to do. He said, pray in this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The psalmist cannot be amillennial. Jesus cannot be amillennial. There's a third cannot. The New Testament writers cannot be amillennial. The New Testament writers cannot be amillennial. Let's, let's just for fun set them up to kind of argue with each other. Let, let's see how they'll stack up together. Turn first to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, just a page or two over from where we are. We're in Solomon's portico at the temple. Peter preaches a sermon after having healed a lame man. Acts 3, verse 12. But when Peter saw this, this, speaking of all the people filled with wonder and amazement, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? 
The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the author of life whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And Peter asserts that these things were foretold. This was not God's plan B. This was always plan A. Verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And so Peter is asserting here a literal view of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. So was he amillennial? That the prophecies concerning the coming kingdom are symbolic in nature, even though the prophecies about the first coming of Christ were literal. Is he amillennial? Verse 19, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. That is a specific phrase to the Jew that means a time of the kingdom on earth. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, another end times phrase, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Did you notice this? He's taking the prophecies of the second coming of Christ literally as well. Times of refreshing, times of renewal. Renewal, what does that mean? A time when Israel as a nation will repent. Well, You might say what Peter really means is that the church will replace Israel. Verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Peter's saying that the Abrahamic covenant in which God promised to bless the descendants of Abraham is still in effect, and I blew right by this phrase, verse 26, for you first. Who? Who's he speaking to? Men of Israel. For you first. That's premillennialism in detail. Turn to Acts 15. Acts 15, Peter wasn't amillennial, but maybe James, the head of the Jerusalem church, he was, and maybe he'll correct Peter. Acts 15, verse 13. Now, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the fallen booth of David and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. The acceptance of the Gentiles into the kingdom, citizenry, that that wasn't a rejection or a cancellation of God's promises to Israel at all. Because after the time of the Gentiles is over, that's speaking of the church age in which primarily the church is made up of Gentiles, God will rebuild the house of David. The Davidic covenant promises will be fulfilled. When? Verse 16. After these things. That's premillennialism 101. Turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. Peter and James were premillennial. Maybe the author of Hebrews can set them both straight. Maybe the author of Hebrews will explain that the church has replaced Israel and that what Abraham once understood as literal promises to his descendants are now changed in light of Israel having crucified Christ. Maybe now we'll understand that. Hebrews 6.13. We read this passage this morning, interestingly. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, desiring even more to show to the heirs 
of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath. The unchangeableness of his purpose. This is a Greek word that means the unalterable nature. Or if I could use kind of a, a made-up definition to put a bunch together, the impossible to change thisness. It's impossible to change. Okay, Peter, James, writer of Hebrews, they're all premillennial. But we have to check in with Paul. Maybe he'll correct those guys. Maybe he'll set Peter and James and the author of Hebrews straight. Turn, turn back to Romans 3. And Paul, in fact, is going to give himself the opportunity to proclaim amillennialism. He is going to ask the ultimate question for amillennial theology. Let's see what his answer is. Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, he's going to ask a question concerning what about the fact that the Jews have not believed in Christ? What about the fact that they rejected Him as Messiah? What about the fact that they crucified Him? What then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? This is the moment that Paul could have said, yes, their unfaithfulness, their unbelief has now nullified us, now canceled the promises of God to Israel. Now the promises of God to Israel are all fulfilled in the church. That's the time. How does he answer? Verse 4, may it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. Of course he's not going to say that. Because Paul affirms a future for Israel. Look at Romans 9. This is not difficult to understand. I think we've overthought this text at times. Romans 9, verse 1. And, and listen to the depth of his attempt to show us how serious he is. He's essentially uh, uh, just almost placing himself under oath, so to speak. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, true Israel will be made up of all Jews who receive Christ as Savior. And how does he, how does he conclude this massive section on his heart's cry that Israel is restored to God. Look at Romans 11, right near the end, verse 25. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. What's the next word? Until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so that all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. We already cited that psalm. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul was premillennial. So the psalmist cannot be premillennial. Jesus cannot be, or amillennial rather. Jesus cannot be amillennial. And the New Testament writers cannot be amillennial. You can't find one. Let me give you a fourth cannot, and this is a slight divergence here. This is more application. Evangelism cannot be amillennial. Evangelism cannot be amillennial. Specifically, our presentation of the gospel cannot be amillennial to the Jews. 
it would be offensive to them and as evidenced by the many Jewish Christian organizations who, by the way, are all premillennial, amillennialism is very offensive. And you can't proclaim the gospel adequately to a Jew with amillennial theology. Listen to John MacArthur's sample scenario of trying to explain the gospel to a Jew if you're amillennial. Someone is talking to a Jew and saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jew says, really? Where's the kingdom? Oh, it's here. It is? Why are we being killed all the time? Why are we being persecuted? Why don't we have the land that was promised to us? Why isn't the Messiah reigning in Jerusalem? Why isn't the peace and joy and gladness dominating the world? Why isn't the desert blooming like Isaiah 35 promises? Oh, well, you don't understand. All that's not going to happen. You see, the problem is is that you're not God's people anymore. We are. Oh, I see, the Jew says. But this is the kingdom. And Jews are being killed and hated and Jerusalem is under siege. This is the kingdom. If this is the kingdom, Jesus is not the Messiah. He can't be. It's ludicrous. You must be premillennial to adequately share the gospel with the Jew. Instead, our message to the Jews is that God will keep every single promise He made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Israel as a nation. He will keep every single promise He made to David that God has preserved a remnant of Jews for a coming glorious day when He will open the eyes of Israel as a nation to see the one that they have pierced, Zechariah 12.10, to repent and come to their true Messiah, Jesus, by faith. But first, according to Psalm 22, according to Isaiah 53, Messiah had to come to earth first to die as the ultimate final sacrifice for sin. He had to come to inaugurate the new covenant promised to Israel in Jeremiah. The kingdom hasn't yet come, but it is coming. And to be a part of it, you must worship the true king. You must worship the son of God. You must know that Jesus is your Messiah. Because he's coming to make all the promises that you know from the Old Testament come true. Every single one of them. He is King Yahweh who will reign on earth from Zion. So yes, the king is coming. But rather than a doctrinally weak and sentimental song, we can simply hear it from Scripture itself. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, and you know his name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we join in with the last prayer of the Bible. When we hear that, we join in with, Come, Lord Jesus. I'm not premillennial because it's a little argument about end times. I'm premillennial because our whole way of viewing the coming of Christ is based solely on what Scripture says literally about a thousand times. You cannot miss it. You can't miss it. And so we join the last prayer of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, that's our prayer. To be faithful here, to be faithful to proclaim this gospel that there is a coming king. There is a coming king who has blood on his garment, the blood of his enemies and the blood that he is going to shed and so lord as a church we pray to be faithful to have an urgency and an immediacy to put aside of the things of this world to put aside silly disagreements silly arguments and to proclaim to those around us that there is a king who is coming and when he comes he will judge all who are 
left alive here. And should you die in your sin before He comes, you will face Him. And He will judge you according to your works. But that if one would receive this King as Savior, if one would repent and turn away from loyalty to sin and turn instead to loyalty to this great and glorious King of all the kings and Lord of all the lords, then He will be your King. He will be your Lord. And you will be His for all eternity in glory, in majesty, in delight when He rules on this earth and then even beyond that into the coming age after this great king has put all of his enemies under his feet. Lord, I pray that based on our understanding of what is to come, that we would be faithful this day with an urgency for those around us. That we would be contented and peaceful this day knowing that the king is coming. We thank you and praise you in the name of our coming king, Jesus Christ. Amen.